How important is that second victory? And I don't know, I want to say respect. You guys all respect each other. But there's a multiple tour winner at a different level on the PGA Tour. Then even It's hard to win any time you're on the PGA Tour. You've got one win, you know, incredible. But when you're a multi-winning player on the PGA Tour, is there a different level of that than amongst your colleagues, I guess, or a different level of knowing how hard it is to win to do it more than once? And how important is that for you to get that second win? Well, I think a little bit of it may be a little bit more respect from your peers being a multiple winner. But I think the biggest thing is personally it's validation that the first one wasn't a fluke. You know, you, you see people that say, oh, well, you know, he won one time. That was a fluke week or whatever. Um, I think winning the second time is just validation for winning the first one. Um, it's kind of like playing a playing a skins game with your buddies when you're playing fumbles and steals and you have to validate the skin. Um, it's just, it's as much proven to yourself that you can do it again as it was proven to yourself that you could do it the first time. Yeah. And I think it might be a little different with you in the sense that your, your consistency on the PGA tour has been, I mean, really, really good. So it's not like you just flashed out there one year and one and no one ever saw you again. I mean, I think you've proven yourself that you're a, damn good tour player so yeah just I, because you've played so consistently well i guess it's my question is does your does your consistency also you know your colleagues respect the fact of how good you've been for the extended period of time you've done it in or like i said does that win i'm sure it's a combination of both right the consistency but to notch that second win would kind of also validate the first one like you're seeing or, or basically what you're saying so i i have to imagine you know you got to be pretty damn motivated once to get healthy to go back out there and get that second one done. Well, you know, my biggest motivation more than anything is I want to play in the masters again. And I know that I need to win again to get back in the masters. Um, you know, my, my absolute two favorite tournaments in the world are the masters and the Memorial. Um, you know, there's a lot of tournaments that I love. I love colonial. Um, it's one of my favorite tournaments, one of my favorite courses that we play. But, you know, my my ultimate goal is to get back and play Augusta again. A very good friend of mine here in Spartanburg was a member at Augusta National, um, passed away in the fall of uh, 2017. And, you know, a funny story, we have a, a pretty big junior tournament here at our club, which I've been on the board for mm, seven or eight years now. And it was named after his father. And nothing excited him more about golf than watching the kids play in this tournament. And every year, we'd finish the tournament on Sunday, and he'd look at me and go, hey, let's go to the range and hit some balls. And I would go watch him hit balls to dark. And we were talking one year while we were on the range, and he said, we were talking about a golf shot, and he said, you know, it kind of reminds me of such and such shot at Augusta, don't you think? And I said, Rob, I don't know. I've never played Augusta. And he says, well, you let me know when you want to go. And I said, honestly, at this point, I don't really want to go until I have a good enough reason to go. He never mentioned the Masters or Augusta National again. Sunday night after I won, he sent me a text. You know, congratulations. Great play, and I'm very happy for you. And that was it. And then Wednesday morning after Memorial, about 8.30, I'm sitting there on my phone, still returning text messages, and my phone rings. And it was Rob. 
And he says, I said, good morning. And he says, is that reason enough to go? I said, yes, sir. He said, we open October 17th. You let me know when you want to go. Click. And, but he respected the fact that I didn't want to go until I qualified. Now, if I wanted to go, all I had to do was pick up the phone and call him or shoot him a text and say, hey, when's the next time you're available to go to Augusta? We'd have gone. But I didn't want to go until I qualified for that tournament. You know, with him passing away a couple of years ago, I think it's a little extra motivation for me. I remember when we left, when we pulled out of the parking lot at Augusta in 2017, he was standing there as we were pulling out. And he says, hey, we stopped, rolled down the window. And he says, hey, there's never a better time to qualify than this week in Hilton Head. And, you know, Sunday night, I was a couple off the lead in like the third to last group of the day. And, uh, you know, I get a text message, never better time to qualify than right now. And I ended up finishing third. But, you know, that to me, the ultimate motivation is to get back there. And, you know, I, it doesn't really matter to me if I need to validate my first win or need to win again to gain more respect from my peers, I want to win again so that I can go back to Augusta, plain and simple. Well, it's a nice segue. I was actually going to ask you about your first experience at Augusta, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but it, it has to be one surreal moment to, to drive down Magnolia Lane. You know, you've earned your way there. Uh, it's not by accident. And then, you know, you played really well on that Thursday. And then, you know, to be competitive the first time you're at Augusta, your first experience had to be, that had to be such a, a cool way of your, you know, rookie or your first go around at playing in the Masters. It had to be fantastic. Well, you know, the Masters, I think, is the one tournament as a kid, like you dream about playing. You, you just, you want to play that place so bad because you watch it on TV every year and you see how perfect it is. You see how much fun the guys are having playing there and you know how much respect everybody has for the place. And, you know, to, to, to drive down Magnolia lane for the first time and, and throughout the tournament, you know, you sit there and you're, you're kind of like, wow, I'm actually getting to do what I've dreamed about my entire life. And it's such a cool place. And, you know, the members down there are phenomenal. You know, just just whatever they can do for us that week. I mean, they're so welcoming. Um, you know, to have your whole family there, it, it was a blast. And, you know, to play well just kind of was icing on the cake. Um, I mean, it was it was everything that you could expect it to be and more. I do have the distinction of saying that I did the first post-round interview in that new media center, um, which, I mean, that building is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I think the media may have it the best that week of anybody on the property. Um, they are very well taken care of. And, you know, everything Augusta does, they do it first class. And, I mean, the place is just, it's so fun. Um you know, I asked the question several times about the new practice facility they built. You know, you get out there and it, and it's, you can tell how much thought went into that facility. You know, it, it's, it's the greatest place on earth as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's somewhere that, you know, I'd love to go play again, but I'd rather go play it in the tournament. 
um, just because it's so much fun. And, you know, there's so many people that have gone to that tournament for so many years. Um, And there's a ton of people that I know that go every year. And, you know, there's a huge crowd from Spartanburg that went down. And I remember on Sunday morning, um, I was riding from the range over to the clubhouse and ran across a group of kids from our club and their parents. And, you know, having that kind of support means a lot. And it it was, it was a cool experience and I look forward to, to having that experience again, for sure. At Sub-70 Golf, we're known for our handcrafted, custom-built golf clubs with our factory direct model, but we're also utilizing that factory direct model for our golf bags and our ultra-premium golf gloves. So if you're looking for a new bag for the season or gloves throughout the season, please check out GolfSub70.com for all of those needs. We also touched on this one a little bit of your love for, for classic designs and, and you know golden age architecture and Obviously, you've got to play some of the best golf courses in the world, but uh, in your opinion, you know, what makes for a really great golf course? And it doesn't have to be one particular style or another. And is there two or three golf courses that, uh, and it might not even be Augusta, which everyone knows is brilliant, that they're maybe in South Carolina, they're on the radar or something like that, that, that you think encapsulates or captures what you most like about golf architecture? To me, my biggest thing, a great golf course is a challenge for the great player, whether you're an elite amateur or a tour player, but is also very playable for the average golfer. Um, You know, I had the luxury of growing up an hour from Pinehurst, and my first teacher was the head professional at Pinehurst Resort, and I had the fortune of playing that golf course playing number two gosh probably 500 times um between the age of 16 or 17 and and 24 or 5 and to me i think that's one of the greatest designs ever because it is a challenge for the very good player but it's also very playable for the average golfer um not saying that the average golfer can go out there and shoot his best round but he can finish the golf course. Um, I think some of the newer stuff is so geared towards being hard for the tour player or the elite amateur that it's not playable and not fun for your average golfer. Um, and I think that's why golf as a whole is starting to struggle a little bit. You know, people don't have fun when they're playing golf. You know, golf courses are getting so hard. We're having to add so much length to them to keep up with technology that you know it just kind of takes some of the fun out of it because your average golfer can't hit the shots to be able to play the golf course you know i I look at the older style golf courses donald ross is my all-time favorite architect most of his golf courses and i wouldn't say all but you know the the large majority of his golf courses are very playable for the average player but they're also a challenge for the tour player now some are outdated because they're short, but if you were to go, and I do this a lot at our club because our golf course is 6,300 yards from the tips. So I'll hit my tee shot and then I'll drop a ball back. You know, if I'm, if I drive it down there to hundred yards, I'll drop a ball at 180 and play in from there. 
that's how I have to practice to, to prepare for what we play on tour. Uh, because we don't have the length here. We don't have the land to add a ton of yardage. Um, but I look at how he designed golf courses and I just, I think they're genius. Well, number one, he takes the natural lay of the land. He didn't have the luxury of bulldozers and, and all the new equipment to build a golf course. He had to use mules and dynamite. Um, you look at his golf courses historically, they drained very well because he took the natural drainage of the land versus going in as some of the new architects do and, and push land around to level it out or create undulations. And it's, it's messing with the natural drainage. Um, you know, I love Tillinghast golf courses. I love Seth Rayner golf courses. Um, those guys, you know, they didn't have the stuff to work with that the architects have nowadays. And, and I look at what they did and, and, you know, some of their greens are designed for, for much slower speeds than what, what we play now, but, you know, they're still able to, to manipulate the contours a little bit to create a very playable golf course. As a follow-up, did you like the work that Core Crenshaw did to Pinehurst number two, um, with kind of opening it up a little bit more, and I'm sure you played it many times before they did that work, and I'm sure you played it afterwards. What's sort of your opinion of uh, of their work or restoration to the course? Initially, I wasn't a huge fan. You know, the first time I played it, I, I walked off and was kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. But the more I play it, the more I love it. And knowing that that's how the golf course was when it was built in the early 1900s, I think going back to his original plans, you're starting to see a lot of Donald Ross courses that if they can get their hands on his original plans, they're going back to his original design. Mm -hmm. Yes, they may have to add some length to some holes to update it, but they're going back to his natural design of bunkering and green contours. Um, You know, having played it now, I don't know, three or four or five times, since Cor and Crenshaw have redone it, I love it. And and I see Ben at the member pro at Seminole every year and he's redoing Seminole as well. You know, I didn't play it before they started at Seminole, but I love what he's doing. And I had a conversation with him last year. I told him, I said, Look, I said, I played number two the first time after you redid it and I thought, mm, I'm not real sure about this. I said, But the more I play it, the more I love it. And, you know, he he's a huge golf historian. If I owned a club and was building it from scratch or bought an existing club and was renovating, there's no doubt that I would go straight to Ben and have him and Bill Core do it. Um, I think what they're doing is phenomenal because it's a challenge for the great player, but it's also extremely playable for the average golfer. And, you know, I, I just love seeing people when they go back to the older style the older looks. Um, now, I, I think that's what Ben and, and Bill Cord do best. I'm with you on the golden age architecture. I'm lucky enough when we, we go to South Carolina, we stay in Charleston. I always get to go out to Yeaman's and Country Club of Charleston. And I think both of those courses, too, totally fit into what, what you're saying that you love about that golden age architecture. And if I remember correctly, you had an association with the Country Club of Charleston. Um, it's I do. I'm an I'm a honorary member there. Yeah. And I absolutely love that place. Um, you know, it it's the kind of golf course that can play so different every day based on wind speed and wind direction. You know, you can play that golf course 
it doesn't play extremely hard with a 20 mile an hour wind out of the south but it can play extremely hard with a 10 mile an hour wind out of the north you know i I think that's the mark of of the great architects is they made the golf course to where well it's like the third and fourth hole at, at seminole donald ross designed those two holes to be played in nine so if you catch an east wind the third hole is a par five but it's going to play more like a par four but the fourth hole is a par four and it's going to play more like a par five Mm -hmm. so you know i think that's the great design of the older guys i think the newer the newer architects look at it and go well this hole is going to be a 495 par four regardless of where the wind comes from and you know, bunkers that are in play one day at the Country Club of Charleston might not be in play the next day because of the wind. You know, you may you may can wear a driver out one day and not get to a fairway bunker, and the next day you can fly it no problem. And But another bunker might be in your way. And I think that's the mark of a great architect. And he, the older architects, especially Donald Ross, they always left the front of the green open for you. So you could always play a shot to the front and have an easier chip and putt. And a lot of the newer architects, there's always a deep bunker in front, and you know, it, it just does it. It's not my style. Um, you know, I just I love what Corin Crenshaw did with number two because they brought the ground game back in. You know, if you need to to back foot a five iron from 130 yards and run it up on the green, you can. Whereas a lot of the newer stuff that gets overwatered, you know, you you can hit that shot, but it's going to plug where it hits. Or it's going to run up into a bunker. Um, you know, I, I like having options, and I think one of the things that makes number two play so difficult in the U.S. Opens is all the options that it gives you around the green. Because pretty much every green out there, you can use any one of the fourteen clubs in your bag to play a shot around those greens. And one of the best lessons I ever got, my teacher when I was working with a guy in Pinehurst, sent me out to play one day. And he grabbed my pitching wedge, my sand wedge, and my lob wedge out of my bag. He said, pick them up out of my office on your way back to the car. And I said, well, what do I do if I hit it in a bunker? He says, figure out how to play it with a nine iron. I said, well, what about missing greens? He said, learn how to hit other shots. And at the time, I thought it was stupid. But I learned real quick. He was trying to get me to learn how to play other shots. That's one of the best lessons I've ever gotten in my life. And, you know, there's courses on tour that we play that, I never go for a wedge around the greens. It's too tight. It's too grainy. There's something. And, you know, sawgrass is a place that I'll grab a three iron and kind of use it as a putter. Well, a putter doesn't get the ball on top of the grass fast enough, not enough loft. But the three iron has just enough to get it scooting through the fringe. And you see a lot of the the younger guys that, you know, they've chipped with a 60-degree wedge their whole lives. And they go out there and start trying that, and it's chunk central. And they they don't they haven't grown up having to play different shots. They've they've always used a lob wedge on every chip shot. And I think that's that's one of the advantages for me is that I know how to hit several different clubs around the green, and I'm comfortable doing it. Yeah, old school way of playing golf, right? You can you can you can do both, and I also agree with you. That's where some of those old school golf courses from that era that you play Chicago golf club or whatever those may be. It's, there are so many options and the game was played different then. And it, it does give you an option of 
five different shots. I think it's just, it's utterly fascinating from a strategic standpoint of how do you go about it, right? It's it's definitely not one dimensional. I think that makes the creativity makes it so cool to play those classic designs. I'm I'm a thousand percent with you, and that's the the best kind of golf. I think that there was something in the water in the 1920s, whenever those guys had, but it's they they stand the test of time. They're still just utterly amazing to play. Well, I look at it like this. You know, there's 18 little boxes on the scorecard that you're supposed to write a number in. There's nowhere on that scorecard is there a box for you to draw a picture of how you got to that number. Yes, the little spinner 60 that you hit is going to generate more wows from the crowd. But you know what? I'm going to generate more up and downs with the other clubs in my bag than I am with that 60 trying to hit that spinner. And that, that's kind of how I've looked at it is, is I don't care what it looks like. I just, I just need to make a number. Got two more here for you, and I'll, I'll get you out of Dodge here. Um, curious on Tuesdays, do you play a lot of competitive money games on the PGA Tour to kind of keep yourself competitive? Uh, I know some guys do and some guys don't. I didn't know what your philosophy was on that. I'm not a huge fan of the gambling games. Um, you know, I'm not much of a gambler, period. I'm probably the only guy on tour that's played the tournament in Vegas more than once or twice that's never lost a dollar in those casinos out there because I've never sat down and played. Um, you know, I'm not, it's just not something that gets me going is the gambling. Um, yeah, I don't mind going out and playing a $5 Nassau, but I'm not going out and playing for the big bucks that some of those guys play for. It's just not my thing. And the final one I have uh, to ask you is the, uh, I've heard, tidbits of it but the classic story of uh the tiger woods are you watching this, the, the scoreboard story from you know the goat uh he kind of had to uh what chime in and give you his opinion a little bit of scoreboard watching under the uh, pressure of a back nine well I don't, I don't think we have enough time to uh to go through the full story um, the cliff notes will work well so the cliff notes um i had finished second two weeks prior in Canada. And, you know, Brandon, my caddy is real good friends with Joe LaCava and Joe came over to congratulate him on the finish. And, you know, I was talking to Joe and I said, yeah, my only regret is I didn't look at a leaderboard on Sunday and Tiger was hitting putts probably 30 feet away. And he looked up and he says, what you didn't what? And, you know, I said, Tiger, I get it. You know, now, first of all, this is the first time Tiger Woods ever parted his lips to me. Okay. <laughs> so this is my introduction to Tiger. And he comes over and, all right, spill the beans. So I kind of go through it. And he looks at me and he says, Do you think Kobe's not looking at the scoreboard with a minute to go in the game? I said, Tiger, I get it. You just have to understand where I'm coming from here. I said, you know, my first time in that situation with a chance to win on tour, I didn't want to screw it up watching leaderboards. And he keeps going. And, you know, we're nose to nose at this point. I mean, he is in my face letting me have it. And and he looks at me at the end and he says, you know what, you're an idiot. And I looked at him and I said, well, you know what, we can agree on something then, thanks. But, you know, I took out of that conversation that, you need to know what's going on at all times. You know, I went into that day with a game plan and I said, look, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to try to play my absolute best and look up after 18 holes. And if I get the trophy, I get the trophy. 
But, and you know what? I was fine all day. Never had the first amount of nerves. And then I'm standing on the tee on 18 and somebody yells, birdie wins, par ties. And I went, oh man. And I kind of didn't catch all the hybrid off the tee. And I'm left with this downhill lie with the ball below my feet. And I need to hit a high draw in this pen. Good luck. You know, you can't miss it last. So I fanned it out in the right bunker and hit a terrible bunker shot, a terrible putt, finished tied for second. Well, learning curve, right? It, even the best, right? You got to go through it and, and, you know. Well, but you can you can bet on one thing. I've looked at the leaderboard every round since. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, coming down the back nine at Memorial that Sunday, I looked at every leaderboard that was out there. And, you know, I, I, all day I was a shot or two or three back. I mean, I was, I know I was a couple back and we were standing on 12 T when the storm started rolling in and Cooch hit first and gosh, he must've backed off of it five or six times. The wind was really starting to howl and starting to swirl a lot and he didn't commit and he tugged it way left. And I, th- I think he ended up making bogey and I stand up there and I backed off of it a couple of times. I know I, at different times I had five, six and seven iron in my hand. And I finally said, okay, I, I called Brandon back in and I said, okay, what do we have that will comfortably get us in the front bunker? And he said, six iron. I said, if I flush it, will it get there? He said, yes. I said, if I tug it, will it get over? He said, probably not. And I flushed this thing dead at the pin and it covered by a yard. And um, it's just a situation where, you know what? When you get under the pressure like that, a lot of times you're not thinking super clearly. And that's when I knew that day I was kind of in control of everything. And when I backed off and called him back in and went through that conversation with him, you know, we both kind of knew that, that I was kind of in control of what I was doing. And I was able to, to hit the shots I needed to down the stretch. And, and a very similar circumstance happened at Augusta the next year. The first day, uh, Jason Day and Brant Snedeker and Justin Rose were in front of us. And I had missed it right of the green on 11 to the right pin, which was just absolute death. And those guys were teeing off on 12, and the wind is howling and swirling. And I'm watching those guys. I'm going to let them hit before I chip on 11. And they're backing off, and there's, you know, they really weren't committed to the shots they hit. You know, Rosie steps up there first, grabs a 7-iron, hits it about 15 feet. Jason Day hits a 7-iron, it flies the green, flies the back bunker, lands in the pine straw, kicks back in the bunker, and then Snedeker flushed a 7-iron in the front bunker. And I'm watching all this, and I'm like, geez, oh, yeah, i got to get this up and down first. And I ended up getting it up and down, and we walked up on that tee, and I looked at Brandon, and I said, what do we have? And it was either 156 or 158. And I had already teed the ball up, and I grabbed the 7-iron, took a practice swing, and hit it. And hit it about 12 or 15 feet. And I walked back over to hand in the club and he goes, what happened? I'm like, what? He goes, I've never, he's like, you play fast and I've never seen you hit one that fast. I said, buddy, I wasn't going to stand here and think about it. I said, you gave me, I said, you gave me the numbers and, and we both knew that it was covering the front and it wasn't going in the bushes behind it. I said, and I wasn't going to stand here and give the wind a chance to, to keep swirling. 
And uh, is that the trickiest little par three you've ever played? Can, is it? I that? think it's one of the greatest holes ever designed, especially when the wind's involved. Because I don't care what anybody tells you, you will not figure out the wind on that hole. I mean, you you cannot do it because you've got the alley coming down eleven and the alley coming back towards thirteen T and that low area in there and tons of tall trees around, there's no chance of figuring out what that wind's doing. Because you watch. The flags on eleven and twelve never blow the same way. And you can throw up grass and it goes a third different way and the trees are blowing a fourth different way. And if you can see the water it's blowing a fifth different way. You know, I I think it's one of the greatest holes ever designed. And it's got to be hard to practice on, even in practice rounds, in the sense of you're never going to probably recapture that exact wind gust. No, it was, it was dead perfect in the practice rounds. I mean, there was might have been five miles an hour of breeze. Um, and that and that's what makes it tough is is there's no real way to practice that shot. Right. right. Um, but you know, what, one of my things is is all the par threes on tour seem to be gravitating towards where they start with a two and, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are starting with two two or more right and you know if i told you to name your five most memorable par three how many of them would be more than a seven iron shot uh i can tell 16 you at cyprus. Five, 16 at cyprus 16 at cyprus okay that's the only one i'm trying to think of my best ones right yeah the best the best ones are all kind of to be honest are the are shorter holes, right? There's, there, but well, for the most part, there's not too many 215-yard holes that are that interesting. For me, I have to pull out a three-hybrid and hope to God to hit the middle of the green, right? I mean, for us amateurs, those holes are well. I would hard. tell you, I would tell you, twelve and sixteen at Augusta, uh, seven at Pebble, uh, seventeen at Sawgrass, and uh, the postage stamp at Troon. What's the longest club you're going to hit on any of those? Maybe a five or a six iron to the back pin if the wind's in your face on uh, sixteen at Augusta. Right, the rest are short. I mean, I mean the, the rest are tiny. I mean, I mean you can throw it on the green on seven at Pebble on a calm day. It's a hundred and sixteen yards and plays down to about a hundred. I mean, I've thrown a ball on that green, and I've also hit a five iron on that hole. I was just going to say, people think I'm crazy. No, no, I, I, I'm like, no, I've hit five iron on that hole and barely gotten it to cover the front bunker. And no, I was not chipping it. No, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I think it's a better hole than, than 17 at Pebble, which is cool. But I think, I mean, I think eight's fantastic, right? It's just the coolest little hole. So I I think, I think the stretch from, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 might be the greatest stretch of golf holes that I've ever played. You know, when you factor in number one, the beauty of them, but, you, know, you you could make an argument that the greens on a couple of them, eight green is borderline ridiculous. Yes, but you know the, there there's not four legitimate pins on that green. But eight is the best but, second shot ever on a par four. Amen. It is. Amen. It's the greatest. That is one of the prettiest second shots ever. Yeah. I, um, you know, I think nine's a great hole. I think ten's a great hole. Um, you know, people can't understand unless you've been there. The second shot in the six. All you can see is that hill in front of you in mm-hmm. blue sky. Yep. You know, you pick your line. When you're walking off the tee, you kind of figure out where your ball is. And by the time you get to the cart path in front of the tee boxes, you've got to pick your line out as to what you're aiming at on that hill. Mm-hmm. Because you can't see anything else. Correct. You know, I think one of the best shots Tiger's ever hit in his life 
was in the 2000 Open when he drove it in the right rough, and he hits it out of that rough onto the green or into the fringe or something. People have no idea how hard that shot was. To get it up that high, carry it far enough to carry the the wall, or it goes in the ocean, mm-hmm. yeah, people can't appreciate that shot until you see it. And you know now they've taken the rough out over there. But I think that's one of the best shots he's ever hit. And there's been a lot of good ones. No, it's uh, yeah, you're right on the par threes. I I agree with you. I think I think the 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 prototypical for you guys having hit five iron off a peg from two twenty eight or two twenty five to a big green that's kind of nondescript. I, I I don't know. There's a lot of them on tour, and it's but I don't think it's nearly as interesting as a really good hundred fifty three yard par three with options of. Great pin locations oh, yeah. and right, right. I just think it's a it's a cooler, better shot for the overall for yeah. everybody in the game of golf. Well, I mean, most of your golfers can play a hundred and fifty yard par three. The majority of golfers nowadays they can't play a two hundred and thirty yard par three. Mm-hmm. It's too long for them. They have a lot of them are having to hit driver or three wood mm-hmm. on a two hundred thirty yard hole. You know, and I think the short par threes are what really make people feel like they can hit the same shot that we hit and i think it's a lost art now everybody's everybody's in the distance debate they're they're scared to let guys hit a eight iron into a par three they might make birdie well and usually those holes you can make a birdie but there's also danger lurking on those holes so you have the confidence to say well you're you know you're william mcgurt you got an eight iron in your hand you're a touring pro but one little tug or one little push and now you're you're struggling to make the three. That's the beautiful well, risk reward of a short par three. I think of of how it plays in your head. Well, my thing is, if you put an eight iron in my hand, I'm probably going at the flag. Exactly. But if you put me back there at two thirty and I'm hitting three iron, I'm aiming at the middle of the green, regardless of where the pin is. I'm just trying to hit the green and two putt and get out of there. You know, you're not thinking about making two when you're standing up there hitting a three iron or hit it. I agree. But you're thinking about making two when you're hitting an eight iron and now you know you try to force it into that tight pin you short side yourself and you're walking off making four instead of two or three and you're kicking yourself walking to the next tee and that's the best part of those short par threes of the mental thing it can do to you because you know i'm a good amateur player when the eight iron my hand will hit as far as you but i'm thinking it's a scoring chance and god if you know you walk off with a four on a short par three you just you're beside yourself for five minutes yeah I, that's what, but if I make a four on a two hundred and you know for me a two hundred ten yard par three that I got to hit a three hybrid into or something, eh? You're saying, well, I didn't kill myself. I didn't make double. Exactly, right? Yeah. And that's the you best wa- part. You of walk out making par, feeling like you made birdie. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's I'm with you on the architecture. That's uh, like I said, we're you take we're just talking about the golf courses that we love, and you know, Country Club of Charleston has those. All of those attributes, and I can see why you like that golf course so much. And and I still think those old classics all have a short three into them. Um, you know, it was a great one at Country Club of Charleston on the front nine. Like it's well, the third hole is a relatively short par three. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've also hit three iron into that hole. I've hit eight iron. And I've also hit three iron. It's you know, take the eleventh hole. I mean, when it's howling downwind, I mean that hole's hard enough as it is. Yes. I've hit nine iron there. I've hit three iron there. Yeah. Same thing with 17. I mean, I've hit five iron there, and I've hit pitching wedge. There's such a variety of how, you know, like based on wind and what's going on and what you're, you know, what you're seeing that day of of the different clubs that you're hitting, but, they, but they're but they not all the same. That, and they won't ever yeah. all play the same either based on the wind condition that day. I agree. 
Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for your time. I we went a little bit over, but I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you know, best of luck on the rehab. Look forward to seeing you out and hopefully tour this sometime this summer. And uh, uh, when you get that second win, we'd love to have you back on and uh, talk about the Masters and and talking about another victory. So thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to coming back on again.